Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody in computer land and wherever else you are. This is Dr. Simon, and my show, as always, are the stories we live by. And um, today in Florida, the weather, the humidity dropped, the temperature went down 10 degrees. Ah, oh, heaven. In any event, I have a terrific guest with me tonight. His name is Michael Weinberg, and I will refer to him as Mickey because everybody calls him Mickey. And he's an MSW. And I want to read a little bit about uh, his, his uh, history. Um, he writes, the, I was born in 1941. Tom Zoss uh, graduated with honors from the University of Cincinnati. And for those of you who have been listening to my show, you know who Tom Zoss is. Tom Zoss wrote The Myth of Mental Illness, which is uh, an incredible book that has been um, treated as if it's a toxic dump by people in the mainstream of the mental health industry, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. They know it's there, but they treat it as something awful and they don't read it. Uh, on the other hand, it has been translated into at least 25 languages and I don't know the uh, top of the sales of that and his other books but they're in the millions and for many of us somebody's trying to reach me forget that in any event that he's talking about Zoss um, he got his MSW Concentration in Grassroots Organizing from UCLA, and that's really what we're going to talk about, uh, his organizing skills and the things he has done in the past and the things he would like to see happen in the future. And you know what? I'm not even going to read the rest of this, although one of the things you will see is a, uh, where, uh, a URL HTTPHSSM.SEML.UCLA.EDU, which is a film, if you go to it, of uh, a, a hunger strike uh, that uh, Mickey was part of, and something I just admire enormously, because many of us uh, talk the talk, but don't really walk the walk. Um, you know what, let me ask you, what got you involved, Mickey, in social organizing, especially in this particular area of uh, dealing with those who have been labeled mentally ill? Yeah, sure. Um, and when was it? It was about 1964 or so. Uh, I withdrew from law school in New York and needed a job and managed to get a job at Manhattan State Hospital in New York. Uh, this was a period uh, in the early 60s where there was still a lot of transition between talk therapy and the use of drugs. So I saw the best and the worst of psychiatry when I was at Manhattan State Hospital. But tell you a story that, that taught me something. Um, because I was young at the time and male, uh, the powers that be at the at the hospital turned a lot of a lot of the uh, young male patients over to me to help. One of them was a 13-year-old kid who had grown up in psych hospitals. His mother, uh, he he was born in a psych hospital, and he had spent his whole life there. At one point in his life, he had just one possession. He had a transistor radio and he did something to offend a psychiatrist or the staff and they took his transistor radio away from him and he blew up. He got very angry and for unknown reasons, the staff wrote that he was homicidal in the chart. What he wanted more than anything in the world and what he was constantly coming back to me to try to arrange he wanted to be able to leave the hospital during the day and see some of the world. He wanted to take a bus and go into Manhattan. Manhattan State Hospital is on an, on an island next to Rikers Island. And that, that's what he wanted to do. He just wanted to experience life away from the psych hospital. Um, it, 
young as I was and naive as I was, I thought, well, maybe we could do it. I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare try that now, because of what the liability would be if anything would happen. Right. But, right, right. But what I did, what I did then was to go to the the chief psychiatrist for male patients, and I told him what this young man wanted to do, and he said, well, first let me look at the chart. They say he's homicidal. So he looked at the chart, and he he looked to see who wrote the note in which he was called homicidal. And he said, hmm, this, this is a psychiatrist. He said, I know him. I trained with him. He's crazy. Let's do it. <laughs> so we did it. And the, 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 I don't know. I guess it's best not to give the kid's name. But he would go into Manhattan every day. Uh, there were no cell phones there, of course. But he knew that he could call me if anything could happen. Very quickly, this, this kid, who was quite bright, got a job as a bicycle messenger. The next thing he did was to join a church. At the church, he met people, and he became adopted by some people there. And in no time at all, he was free to leave the hospital permanently. Uh, what, what did that teach me? Uh, not, not just that miracles happen, but that sometimes the best thing you can do for clients and diagnosed people is to get off their back. And that's all we did was to get off his back, give him a chance. Another story. Uh, but let me ask you something. What kind of follow-up? Did you understand ultimately what happened to him? He stayed out no, of the hospital? I, no, no we, we, we only knew that he had been legally adopted. And his, his parents, of course, didn't want him in the hospital. There was no need to keep him in the hospital. He wasn't homicidal. He had, amazingly, no really serious emotional problems. In fact, given a chance, he re, he resolved his problems on his on, by himself. Yeah, which, which, by the way, I hope the listeners will hear this, because this happens all the time. That people can go through crisis, or people can have in one, behave in one kind of situation in one way, and then when they're out of the situation, figure out how to live a life completely different than the one they. But once the diagnosis is made, it's very hard to get anybody to see you as other than in terms of the diagnosis. Yeah. So he made a life yeah. outside the hospital. Pardon me. It, he made a life outside the hospital. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that can be that. very, very having part of that? people working on their own problems, own practical problems can take enough of an interest in their lives in different circumstances that they essentially mm. cure themselves. When I was in social work school, uh, Larry, did you know Matthew Dumont? Know about no. Him? Well. Matthew Dumont is a psychiatrist. He's in his 80s now in uh I think he's still practicing in Boston, but in 1968, when I was in social work school, he, he visited my class, and what he said was that as he got deeper and deeper into his practice, and this was the 60s, of course, he discovered that what he was doing more, more and more frequently was uh, prescribing for his patients that they get involved in social action groups. And he found that when they began working on practical problems that they had to think through, their whole demeanor changed, their way of thinking changed. Um, they became essentially different people without drugs. And I'll, I'll get to that later. When, yeah, when but I, brother, to... I wanted to ask, how did you feel as a person, as a professional, when you were able to achieve this life change for this young man. Well, at that time, I wasn't thinking of myself as a professional. I, mean, I just made a suggestion that made sense to me. You know, it, it just made total sense that you don't confine a young adolescent to a psychiatric hospital, and nothing could be worse than that. I mean, in my head at the time, I was thinking, if he gets killed... Um, given what his future looked like, that wouldn't be the worst thing that could happen to him. So right. It just seemed like it just seemed like common sense. Right. 
Okay, and then from there, what happened? Let's see. Um, from there, through a series of events, um, graduate school in political science for a while, I ended up at UCLA, and um, by, by mere accident, since I had had some interest in politics and I had just come from a psych hospital, I was thinking, you know, what could combine those two interests? And I knew that they had a program at UCLA in grassroots organizing. And again, just by chance, the uh, the head of the program, in fact, the sole faculty member um, in that uh, concentration was a guy named Warren Hagstrom, who had worked with Saul Alinsky in Syracuse. Uh-huh. So what we were being taught was Alinsky organizing techniques. Um, one of my field placements uh, was at the Veterans Administration Hospital, where, again, by chance, I met a psychologist named George Katz, who later became my mentor, who was organizing uh, veterans in the VA hospital. He and another psychologist got a large grant from the VA and NIMH to um, help people being discharged from the hospital. And that was considered a kind of self-help. And George and I thought, well, maybe the VA and the NIMH might allow us to redefine self-help as organizing. And the other psychologist, who was a very good um, uh, writer, convinced both of those large organizations that it was okay to do it. So the next thing that I did was to become a lead organizer, organizing uh, residents of board and care facilities. And remarkably, I don't know, Larry, if you remember a magazine, semi-popular magazine called Transaction. No, I don't. We put an ad in Transaction, and since organizers generally don't get well-paying jobs, a number of some of the best organizers in the country applied to work with us organizing in, um, in board and care facilities. We would get into these facilities. You know, how, how do you get organized in a board and care facility? The doors are often locked. Um, we would just we use, we used guile essentially. The um, one of the directors of our program was an Israeli. One of the board and care owners was Jewish. This Israeli talked the other guy into letting us into one of the other into one of his board and care homes. Uh, another instance was a, a one resident murdered another resident in a board and care facilities. We immediately went to the owner and said, if there had been an organization that uh, could have handled the anger of the resident who killed the other resident, it probably never would have happened. So by hook or crook and guile, we got into a number of uh, board and care facilities question is, how do you organize people and show them respect in, a, in an institution where they are not treated with respect and they know they're not treated with respect and they've accepted their psychiatric labels? Right. Uh, what, what we would do, and certainly what I did, we would just hang around. Once we had permission to be there, we would hang around the facility. And we'd hang, we hung around for six weeks. And over that period... You know, I'd be I'd be sitting there somewhere, and residents would come up to me and say, "Well, what are you doing here?" And I'd say, "I'm here to help," and they'd go away. Another few days would go, somebody else would come up to me, "What are you doing here?" I'm here to help. At a certain point, at about six weeks, that six weeks was pretty common for some reason. A number of them would come up to me and say, "You know, you say you're here to help us." but you're not doing anything. We could use some help. And at that point, I would say, oh, so you want the help. I've got an idea. What do you think we create an organization, meet regularly, and see if we can meet with the, the director of the facility and talk about whatever you want to talk about? 
great. Let me ask you. <laughs> let me stop you for a second, Mickey. How did the regular dyed in the wool staff? What did they do about this? I mean, they just turned an eye. They didn't care. Well, they hardly this had knew to be I was a, there. Then uh, wasn't it? At that point, they hardly knew I was there. Yeah, ah. I was just sitting around. I was just sitting around with the permission of the owner. So once the residents said they wanted a meeting, and they went to the owner as a group, the owner saw no reason not to let them hold a meeting. After all, you know, I was a social worker, and the only thing they knew about social workers is that they use very traditional methods to try to help people. Uh, I appeared to pose no threat to the facility. Right, right. So we held our first meeting, and again, to show them respect, the first thing out of my mouth at the first meeting was, um, don't trust me. And I would add add to that. The reason I'm saying don't trust me is because therapists and all the people that claim they're trying to help you are always telling you that they can be trusted. So I can get I'll... I can get another I can get another job, you know, in a week and a half that pays twice what I'm making and I'm free to leave. So don't don't trust me and don't I see no reason why you should come to meetings unless you feel I'm helping you. If, you know, right, if, right. if the service I'm giving isn't useful to you, you know, why why should you come to my meeting? You know, I'm sure you can understand that, I think. So we'd, we'd get you know, about 30 people to every meeting, and we would um, meet with the owners or the staff and discuss so improving the food, um, exterminating vermin, that kind of thing, and they began to get some things done. After a while, Larry, and this is to get back to your point, after a while it became clear to the residents that the owners and staff were beginning not to like me and were making remarks about, you know, how I wasn't useful in one way or another. You were a threat to the ongoing function of the the institution. Right. So what I'd say to the residents is that the owners go into this business for two reasons. One is they like the idea that they're doing good and they can talk to their friends and relatives about it and get praised for doing it. At our meetings, we tell them that they're not doing so much good. And they don't like that. The second thing is they go in it for the money. And when we ask them to do things like hire exterminators and get better food, you know, we're costing them money. So that's why they don't like me. Um, so what, what did what did the owners do at that point to, to try to get rid of them? The first, first thing they did was to insist that I had no right to work with um, diagnosed mental patients because I didn't have a, um, a credential, a therapy credential. So I thought, okay, so I, so I went and got one. You know, and I, uh, again, I, because uh, my supervisor was a psychologist at the VA, you know, he was a legitimate person and I could legitimately say that, uh, that I was under supervision. And then I, I got a license and got them off my back. And from about 1974 until I retired, I had a license. Uh, the next thing they did was to try to throw me out of the, the facility, which as it happened, became a um, uh, maybe something something that turned out to be very good because what I what I would do then was to get stand on the grass or on the sidewalk in front of the facility. The residents walked out on the staff and, and they would stand and sit on the grass and we'd hold our meetings in front of the building where we would pass out leaflets to all the neighbors saying, this is what we're do- doing. Um, I, I know you think we're nothing but um, diagnosed mental patients, but stay here for a while, look at the meeting, and you'll find that um, we are flying in the face of all the stereotypes and occasionally you'll see that a staff person will come out and argue with me. So we want you to compare the behavior of the staff with the behavior of the residents. 
<laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. By the way, did you did, did anybody ever try to diagnose you as mentally ill? No. No. Because uh, I'm surprised. I, in, in I know one when way or really... another, I've been, I've been in, in, in actually in therapy uh, from the time my parents got divorced when I was 18, and uh, you know I, I always managed to find very good therapists just by choosing them on the basis of what they said about themselves. Uh, if they said that they belonged to a particular school of thought, I would write them off. Right. Um, if they right. said that what they believed in was forming a good relationship, you know, I'd give them a chance. Uh, in fact, what, well, uh, early in my time in living in Los Angeles, uh, my wife and I belonged to Kaiser, and I decided to um, see a psychiatrist there. But, you know, as you indicated, I had already read Saws and had been doing some work. And so the psychiatrist said to me, Mickey, I want you to dream for me. And I said, I'm not here for you. You're here for me. Goodbye. And left. And I, I think if there are any psych patients listening, it is okay to leave your psychiatrist. I know you don't want to hurt him. You think it might uh, go on your record, but you have a right to do that, and you can always find somebody better. So isn't this, by the way, you know, you raise an issue, uh, and I don't want to get you off track, but isn't it one of the functions of your organizing, and I know in my thinking when I work with people, particularly towards the end of my uh, career, um, to get people to understand that they have rights, that because you've been diagnosed, you don't lose your rights, and that you have to be responsible for yourself when you deal with professionals of any kind. Well, you do um, lose your rights, though. I mean, many I know. Lose their rights. One, one of the reasons it's so hard to organize uh, you know, psych survivors um, is because they're frightened that if they, you know, that having been diagnosed as being crazy and irresponsible, when they stand up for themselves, they believe it's that mental illness going to happen to them. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. What do you mean by psych survivors? Let's throw that in. You use a word, and I'm not sure my listeners understand the well, the, the, the more yeah. definite term of what a psych survivor is. What are they it's, surviving? They're surviving psychiatry. Right. That's head spinning. The, peop the people that I know who have been diagnosed mental patients who turned out to blossom and have the best lives are people who resisted. Um, and there's a guy that some of your audience may have heard of, probably not because he's been dead for a while, a guy named Howie the Harp, who uh, organized the drop-in center for homeless people who had been diagnosed with a mental illness in, in Oakland. And Howie's story is that he... He escaped from the facility he was in. I can't remember the details, but he gave some dogs credit for helping him do that. But he, he escaped and started this facility and, you know, became well-known in the community. I Just oh, a couple of weeks ago, I had lunch with a uh, relatively young woman um, who was in town um, because she was – she's an attorney now, and she works – for people who were psychiatrically diagnosed in various ways. She was a diagnosed mental patient herself, but resisted it. And because she had the wherewithal to resist it and the courage, you know, she went on to lead a fulfilling life. It's the, it's the people that accept their diagnoses and are yes. told they're going to be on drugs the rest of their lives that are least likely to live fulfilling lives. Yes. Well, you can't under those circumstances. Right. I mean, you, you've been defined as damaged. Yeah. And then if you're not damaged by the so-called symptoms, you're damaged by the drugs you're on. Absolutely. You become, I think, physically 
yeah. disabled from those drugs, which is something you know that more, you know much more about that than I do. I've I've learned a lot from from people like you, Larry, and reading Saz and Chuck Ruby, and you know all the dissident professionals um, who got into the business as um, you know PhD credentialed therapists and. In some respects, I had the benefit of seeing the the system as an outsider, so I, I never became dependent on it for my livelihood. Right, right. Uh, and and you know, a lot of the, my book, uh, I talk about the fact that up until the end of my career, I was making diagnoses. And I had a long discussion uh, towards the end with uh, Chuck Ruby. By the way, we're talking about... Um, Dr. Ruby, who is the director of ISEPP, the International Society for Ethical Psychiatry and Psychology. And for anybody who's interested in becoming involved or learning more about a really fantastic organization, ISEPP.org. I got that right, yes? You got that right. Yes. A great organization great organization uh, of resident people, most of whom still diagnose because the system is so set up you can't earn a living yeah. unless you, unless you uh, diagnose. My case, I was a professor as well. I worked in clinic and I worked in a private practice. And it was really when I, it, it, when I was already in my 50s that I stopped doing most of my clinical work and just was as a professor, I could become a real dissident because I didn't have to worry about making diagnoses on any consistent basis. I was independent Absolutely. of this. And, and that's when I became more and more angry and upset about how monstrous that system is and how damaging it is to our, our basic democracy as, as a society. Anyway, a really, uh, a really good in that light, a really good friend of mine who passed away a number of years ago um, was a dissident uh, member of ISEP, and he used to complain to me all the time that as a therapist, the only way he could get paid from many of his patients who were on Social Security or you know other forms of insurance is he had to have a written diagnosis. Right. So he would he would fudge he would just fudge you know he'd give him a real diagnosis of the mildest one possible, but adjustment. he hated doing that because it was pardon me, yeah. adjustment disorder. Right. That's what we use. Yeah, I think that's You're what having he did trouble with. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm sh go ahead. No, I was just going to say I'm sure you know him, and after this is over, I, it's probably best to, to, that I not say who he was. Okay. You know, I want to jump ahead because I don't want to run out of time today, uh, although um, I'm enjoying myself. I hope you're enjoying yourself as well. Oh, we yeah, can always, yeah, yeah, it's fun. We can do a second show. Sure. Uh, I don't, there's, a, there's no problem with that. We can do a whole sequence of the shows, uh, which, you know, and see where they run. But anyway... Talk about the documentary you did with your wife uh, in relation to uh, – and the film. Okay. Well, the film is, is called um, Where's the Evidence? A, a Challenge to Psychiatric Authority. And it is a film of a uh, hunger strike that I organized and participated in. Uh, what we did is um, what, what, what I was trying to do in organizing the hunger strike is to reduce the power of psychiatry. And I'm convinced that the only way that that can be done is if we find ways of um, getting into the mainstream media the shortcomings of psychiatry. And that, that's yes. very difficult to do. Extremely and difficult. If, I mean, they own the airwaves. That's right, and they're owned by the pharmaceutical industry. Right. Or the airway. Right. The airwaves are owned by the pharmaceutical industry. Yes. Uh, well, they're so, not really owned, but they're controlled because they have the money. They have the power. Yeah. That's, that's very frustrating. Very frustrating. 
have all kinds um, of stories about that. And one of them how long uh, did invo- you involve yeah. the hunger strike? How long were you on the hunger strike, personally? Well, a, a, a dissident psychiatrist named Stuart Shipko, who lives in the same town I do, uh, was helping a local church, and he talked the church into letting us hunger strikers uh, live there for three weeks. So it lasted for three weeks, and what we did during that time was to uh, refuse to eat solid food, um, and we challenged the American Psychiatric Association, uh, the Office of the Surgeon General, and the NAMI organization, the organization of parents of diagnosed children, to come up with just one piece of good orthodox research that would support any of their major claims, uh, such as the chemical imbalance theory. And I put together a a panel of academics and well-known practitioners. I'm looking at it now. Among the people on the panel were Fred Bauman, who is a neurologist, um, Lauren Mosier, who at one time was uh, the, the head of schizophrenia studies at NIMH, Mary Boyle, a brilliant, brilliant psychologist. Uh, at she the spoke in 2004, and her book is called Schizophrenia, a Scientific Delusion, although right. she put a question mark, <laughs> which right. I had said uh, should have taken off the question mark. It's a delusion. <laughs> Right, But she did it as a question. And when you read that book, I mean, it just tears the entire notion of of schizophrenia uh, apart. I mean, it's literally a meaningless concept, except as a moral label. Yeah, I was really pleased to get her on board. It it took me two weeks of emails back and forth, but uh, she was very helpful. Uh, Peter Bregan was on the panel and a number of other people. I'm, I'm sure you know, Larry. Uh, And their job was to look at any research that uh, the APA or the Surgeon General or NAMI would produce. The interesting thing was uh, NAMI just wrote the whole thing off and and called us names. But the APA sent a letter to our panel, and it was a very condescending letter. And it said, there is research all over the place. You know, you, you guys just aren't looking um, in fact, you can find good research in any beginning textbook on psychiatry. Right. So our our 14 panelists for a while just felt insulted and said, you know, they're, they're not going to look at any of that stuff. And then they decided that, okay, I mean, the worst thing that could happen is that they get ignored. So they decided to, to look at some textbooks. And over and over again in the textbook, they found statement after statement saying we're on the verge of learning something. Right. Uh, we know there's a gene somewhere, and we're, we're just about to find it. Right. You know, in a week and a half, it's going to be right around the corner, but they could come up with nothing. And right. when when that happened, I think you know, David Cohen, I think, was, was on that panel. And when the hunger strike was over, he said he he said two things that 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 I like. The first one was that he said the uh, the hunger strike got more publicity than he thought it would, but less than it should have. And I can talk about that a little while later. You know why it got less publicity than it should have. The um, Washington Post covered it, but neither the New York nor L.A. Times would cover it. But anyway, the point is, and the other thing that David Cohen said is now for the first time, he has something in writing that when he teaches his classes, he can, you know, hold it up and say, this this is evidence that they have nothing. You know, it's not just me talking off the top of my head. Right. So he said, right. He said, Tell you a funny story, things. just a quick story. When sure. I was in graduate school, a study came out that said that if you looked at the um, – in the fingers of diagnosed schizophrenics, you would find uh, larger than normal arteries and veins. Right? And I remember many of the faculty went wild over this. Here was evidence. Six months later, 
The study was never corroborated. It never had another study to prove the same thing. And like all of these things just disappeared. So to this day, I think we should say there's never been a gene found for any so-called mental illness that could explain or predict, nor any biochemical or physiological explanation for any diagnosis. It's, it's a house of cards. It's a, it's a myth yep. system. But but getting Saz, the public Saz was right decades that. ago. Yes, yes. I mean, this all my career. Every couple, every year, another thing, and then it was we're about to close in on this, and they never will. By the way, they just won't. Uh, didn't no. didn't E. Fuller Tory say blame cats for uh, schizophrenia or something? I don't remember that. Uh, he was uh, he was on the top. He used to analyze. He used to have a basement with brains in it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. They probably weren't psychiatric. The brains of psychiatrists. Anyway. Um. The one thing. One more thing I want to say about the hunger strike as as evidence that uh, that mainstream media will say anything to get out of covering dissident views of the medical model. Uh, a year before the hunger strike started, a couple of reporters for the L.A. Times won a Pulitzer Prize for a series of articles or editorials they wrote about homelessness and mental illness in Skid Row, Los Angeles. Um, I called them cold, congratulated them for their award, and said, you know, I know a number of people who have a differing view about mental health or mental illness. Are you willing to talk to them? And they said, we'll give you 15 minutes. So Lauren Moser <laughs> lived close by in San Diego. Um, David Jacobs, a psychologist, was a friend of mine and lived uh, close by. He was near San Diego. Sally Zinman was a psych survivor who was very prominent and got a lot of respect. Anyway, those three people and a number of others uh, went with me to, to visit the editorial writers. They gave us more than 15 minutes. They gave us 45 minutes. Days went by. They called us back, gave us another 45 minutes. And we were, you know, we were overjoyed. We thought, God, these guys really get it. They're interested in it. The uh, hunger, strike starts, hunger strike starts two weeks into it. One of them called me unbidden saying, hey, man, Mickey, how, how are you doing, Mick? You know, how's your health holding up? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine, Alex. Um, why hasn't the L.A. Times covered the hunger strike? And he said, um, well, it doesn't have a hook. And I said, what, what do you mean it doesn't have a hook? You know, if three students at UCLA don't eat for three days because they don't like a tuition increase, you cover that. We've got, uh, besides, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I've never been diagnosed, but the other five people have been. Uh, one of them is blind. One of them has serious arthritis. They've come from. The five of them come from the four four corners of the United States. They haven't eaten solid food in two weeks. What kind of hook do you need? Any hemmed, any hawed, and nice talking to you, Mickey. Goodbye. And that is typical. Yeah. Yeah, too bad. I mean, there there are there are more things, but you know, time's running out, and I don't. <laughs> I don't want to bore people with more stories, but uh, uh, by the way, I don't know if anybody can possibly be bored by this conversation. Yeah. I really do, because oh, it's, it's vital. Okay. Let's let's move it, because we're going to close in in a, in a little while. Where does this go now? Where are you and you personally uh, uh, trying to work? And what's the goal of your present activism? Okay, the goal of the present activism is what it has always been, and that's to reduce the power and authority uh, that psychiatry, you know, mainstream psychiatry holds and the respect uh, in which it is held. 
Um, and it's my belief that until that happens, there will be no change of any significance. And that right. uh, we, can, we can talk about how we have to get rid of forced treatment, and that's seen as a goal. Or, and you know, I, I, I know you said this, and no disrespect intended, uh, that, you know, we have to, because I agree with you, the language with which we talk about helping, helping people has to change, can no longer be medical, but none of those things are going to happen um, until psychiatry loses its power over things. So the kinds of things I've tried to do recently with a group of very good people, um, Chuck Ruby is one of them, Al Galves, a parent uh, named Cassandra Casey. We've tried a couple of things and have run into the same barrier that that the pharmaceutical industry has bought influence with mainstream media. Um, so I think one of two things has to happen. One of them we tried, and we, we haven't finished with it yet. One is that in order to get the interest of mainstream media, we have to piggyback on an issue that already has public prominence. In, in this case, um, um, mass shootings in schools and other institutions, uh-huh. because uh-huh. it appears to be very likely that many of the shooters about whom it has been said they need psychiatric treatment had already had psychiatric treatment and were on psych drugs or withdrawing from from psych drugs right and in fact in fact we have reason to believe that when when these people are shot themselves um and medical examiners do autopsies, they frequently find um, psych drugs in their system, but they don't report it. And you know, I have some reason to believe that. It's, uh, and the reason they don't report it, ironically, is they're afraid that if they report that the shooters were on psych drugs, they're afraid that pe- other people who are receiving psych drugs won't take their drugs. I mean, it's it's insane. So, but you know, I, let, let's. I want to hone in on that for a minute. Back in the 1970s, in Harlem and other places in the country, there was an epidemic of of cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, still around, but people were really coking up, and they would come home and break up the furniture and throw their wife out the window. They would commit. There were mass shootings and. Sh- but it was in the black community, and so it's just black people doing black people things. But that Coke bears a resemblance in its effect to the antidepressants, the yeah. so-called SSRIs. They produce a stimulant effect. So when we're talking about the possibility that they're involved in mass shootings, we have to understand that when somebody takes these drugs – one of the psychological effects, the physiological and then psychological effect, is that they're high. And the last thing you do ever if you work with depressed people is get them high on a stimulant because everybody who's depressed has an anger. Anger is the, the depression in one way is an anger turned against the self. And now it goes out. Right? So when we talk about this, I think the listener has to understand the psychophysiology of those drugs. They are very, very similar in their effect to the kind of stimulants that people want on the street and buy on the street and get put in prison for. Yeah, yeah. One thing we have to be very careful about, and that's uh, giving the impression that everybody who goes on those drugs gets violent. No, no, but uh, absolutely. I, I think I made that clear, and I'll make it clearer. Yeah. It's yeah. an individual difference in effect, because all of these drugs, the side effects are really direct effects, and depending right. upon who the person is and other issues, the way in which these drugs will ha- have an effect will differ from person to person. 
So, so otherwise, by the way, we would have met right now that if you took the number of people on antidepressant drugs and said, boy, this causes murder, we'd all be dead. <laughs> it would be mass murder on an enormous scale. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another yeah. a different a different point and kind of an obverse reason that the, the drugs can be dangerous that is that, yes, some of them are stimulants, but other of them, others of them suppress emotion and you talk to patients and they'll say i'm not myself um yes it's true that i'm not as wild as i was but now i have no feelings so you take somebody who has lost compassion and whose emotions have been dulled with the right given the right stimulant some of those people will have nothing to inhibit them from committing right. violence. And right, right. That, that or suicide. Yeah, or yeah. suicide, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And this is an issue. And again, getting this stuff out, this information out, is enormously difficult. It really is. So, well, I mean, and if we have a little time, yeah, we do have a little. An, an analogy that, that I draw because besides piggybacking on something that's already an issue, I think another important factor, and we're beginning to work on something, we're at the very early stages of this, is to get powerful people to give us a hearing and speak out. The, the analogy I use is to cigarettes and tobacco. Um, we're both old enough to remember when there were ads for cigarettes that use use doctors, you know, right. more doctors smoke camels, that kind of thing. Right. Um, they were they were seen to be romantic uh, aspects of movies, you know, smoking cigarettes, lighting the woman's cigarettes. So how do you, how do you get rid of that? Well, nothing happened with that until God, I can't think of his name now. Something Terry, a Surgeon General, wrote a report tying tobacco to cancer and that changed everything i mean it right, took, right, it took right. a powerful person scaring the public and i i think that may become useful at some point yeah i mean my my long-range hope is that over time um, things like the hunger strike that showed that uh, the medical model has had no scientific support and things like that well over time, reduce the respect that the courts, the cops, um, other academics have for psychiatry, and that over time, it'll become largely irrelevant. And when that happens, only then will there be room for many forms of help that don't use drugs in force and incarceration. Yes. You know, I'm very pessimistic. I'm going to tell you. I, I feel very good talking to you, um, and I don't, you know, it's like uh, um, I'm pessimistic, but I don't, you know, I can't go on, but I'll go on. Who said that? It became a very famous statement somebody. I can't go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. Um, Sounds like Ralph I Martin. see the whole, the, the rise of science and the rise of a kind of psychology of respect and uh, psychoanalytic type where there's discussion and there was no, before there was any real diagnosis going on. When I came into the field, there were 25 diagnoses, uh, most of them ignored, and very few people were put on drugs. I had a brother who had an episode. He was involved with LSD and whatever, and my mother got a doctor to commit him. Um, and, you know, when he got out, he ran away, and I helped cover his trail to get away. But he, when he came back, he saw a psychiatrist named Chaim Shatton, who was an analyst. And Shatton suggested to him that he go on uh, Thorazine. And he came back a week later and he said, Dr. Shatton, I can't paint. I can't think. I can't be on it. He says, okay, don't take it. That was right. a good psychiatrist. Well, he, was a, oh, he's he, was, he was an analyst in the, in, the psych, in the NYU program. That's how I got him. Uh, when my brother needed somebody, I went to the director of the clinical program, Bernie Katz. Uh, Bernie, uh, what, what was his name? Never mind. Uh, it was Bernie, and, and got him Shatton. 
But this is disappearing. These people are disappearing. They're not there anymore. You know, uh, New York psychoanalytic was at the uh, at the hospital in New York. I mean, uh, up to, what was the West Side Hospital? I can't remember any names anymore, Mickey. It's terrible. Yeah, I can't, I can't either. I can remember numbers. but no Columbia, Columbia Presbyterian. Its psychiatric unit was all psychoanalysis. Uh, and it's, now it's, it's a hotbed of, of nothing but diagnosis and, 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 and uh, prescribing of drugs. And so all of this came about because there was democracy, and it fed the growth of democracy. But I don't see democracy growing in our society now. I think people are accepting things that are authoritarian and, and totalitarian, uh, and I worry because the more authoritarianism in the society, the more psychiatry will hold sway because it's basically a control mechanism. Well, you get into that web, you can't get out. Right? When, when somebody goes to a real good psychologist, like you were saying, somebody who said to you, I... I look to create a good relationship. That's very different than I diagnose you and my goal is to have you less symptomatic than when you came in. Absolutely, yeah. Yes, and I don't uh, see this happening. I really don't, well, unless there's a real turnaround in the larger society when we have a very diverse society that says enough of this and really start to push a genuine democracy. Uh, and I'm scared some, shitless. Some, some. Something you know, though, that, that I was slightly involved in, um, and in some ways it, it, it corroborates what you're saying, but efforts aren't being made to change things. Um, on occasion, on the ICEP listserv, I will write something to the effect that we have to start planning tactics and strategies. We can't just write about what's wrong with the system because we have to find a way to change it. And most of us, I would say a good 99% of us, didn't get the credentials and academic degrees we got by shaking the system. So no, we didn't no, you can't. study how to change the system. Right. Um, so, so recently I wrote on the listserv, I gave an invitation for anybody who would be interested in talking about tactics and strategies to say I or write I. About four or five people out of the, I don't know how many people read the listserv regular, regularly, but only four or five people exhibited any interest in it. Um, that has to change. A, a, favorite, a favorite saying of mine by a guy named... Uh, Antonio Gramsci, who was a turn of the century, in the last century, a politician, and I think he was a communist in, in Italy, had a saying that I love, and that's pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And if it's not clear to the audience, the you know, what he's saying is we have to be realistic. There are real yes. barriers, so we have to recognize those and, and not go off half-cocked. But then we have to persist. That's you know the optimism of the will. Yes, and that, that's totally... the way we have to begin thinking. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. No, no, no argument. Uh, now, one of the things I'm looking at the switchboard. Uh, mm -hmm. I sent out a message. I always do. To uh, I took put it on Facebook. I put it on Twitter. But I send out a separate message to uh, ISIP, and no one calls in. That's and I, not surprising. No, it's not surprising, but sad, because most of the, what happens is, you know, in 2004 and five, I organized the ICSPP conference. Mm -hmm. I did the, the heavy lifting of that. And on the second, the first one, I sent out, let's talk about alternatives to psychiatric diagnosing, and nobody did it. The argument was... Psychotherapy is better, long-lasting, and less harmful than drugs. The next year, I did the same thing, and I was even stronger about it. And people smiled and ignored it. Could not get a discussion. You can't get a discussion on 
What's an alternative view to push? Logically, emotionally, uh, and my own view is that what we do when we talk to somebody with respect, it's a learning situation. It's really educational. It has nothing at all to do with medicine. And if we stripped away all of the medical language, which is what I keep pushing, the idea, you wouldn't come up with new language. What you come up with is people talk to each other, and you really don't need a therapist. You need a democratic situation in which you're treated with respect, you're heard, you're, you're honored for what you have to say, you're not called names, you're not put down. Okay? And if you're yeah. raised that way, in a democracy, you know, uh, it's a very different thing than the authoritarian kind of structure where everybody is labeled, you're better or you're worse. You're worse than the people above you and you're better than the people below you in the hierarchy. Um, well, and you, so, you know, Elizabeth Warren always says, I've got a plan. I, I've been, I've seen that I always have a story and there's a story that, that corroborates what you just said. When I first started organizing, instead of going into board and care homes, we had a central meeting place and people would come from all over the city that we attracted them with a, um, a classified ad in the LA Times. And there was a very quiet woman who who came. She would sit in meeting after meeting and never speak. But I guess the other people in the organization talked to her after the meetings. And they, asked, they, they recognized that she was intelligent and they asked her if she would be the, the organization's secretary and take minutes. And so she began doing that and took very good minutes and occasionally would have something to say. After a while, she started taking on leadership positions. A couple of years went by, and her husband got a job outside California, and she was going to go with him. And she came to me, and she said, Mickey, I was never going to tell you this, but when I came to this organization, this was the last chance that I was giving any group to help. Um, if if you guys hadn't let me go at my own pace, hadn't treated me with respect, my plan was to kill myself. Oh, wow. So another story. You, 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 you treat people with respect, let them go at their yes. own pace, don't label them, and it helps much of the time. It's necessary. It's necessary. See, what I keep arguing in my book uh, uh, is that we have to be part of society, of a family. We can't make it alone. We're genetically programmed. But at the same time, we're all individuals. And part of the struggle of life is how can I be a creative, independent individual and at the same time have loving, respectful relationships with other human beings? That's the struggle, as I understand yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I agree. Yes. And, and, and that's... I, I, going to take a lot of work. Anyway, we're going to have to stop, unfortunately. Okay. I well, hope let's you get a first-rate publisher for your book. Huh? I just said I hope you get a first-rate publisher for your book. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I'm, I just I'm, gave it to Springer to look at, you know, because I have a big review of my book from somebody coming out in this month's um, EHPP journal. So the first time I wrote a book in, in, 2000, in 1994 it was called Psychotherapy, in quotes, uh, Theory, Practice, Modern and Postmodern Influences. And I sent it to Springer, and I wrote this to the lady in Springer now. Got a call from an editor. I love your book. It's terrific. It's well-written, well-argued, but I can't publish it. I said, why? He said, it'll upset the readers. So I said to him, do you publish Bibles or do you publish <laughs> scientific books? And he hung up. <laughs> and I finally That's... got another publisher to, to, uh, 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 to, to do that and two other books on the same topic. So I don't know what's going to happen. And uh, <laughs> Anyway, good night. Okay. Uh... And... Uh, I, I love this. It was I a pleasure this. talking to you. And, uh, I thought I this was terrific. Absolutely. I think you're a terrific person. And I think that uh, what you do and how you do it 
is as important as anything anybody could do with their life. I really do. Well, I that, admire that's you. Nice to, that's nice to hear. Don't give okay. up hope. Gotta no. Okay. I can't okay. give up hope. I mean, you know, you give up hope and you roll over and you die. Okay. I'll talk to you again soon. I'm okay, going to say good night, everybody, and uh, end my episode. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye.